I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. To explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Others lock up your sons. The fangirls are busting out all over. It's Fangirl Radio. Fangirl Radio. Here's the fangirls on Jackalope Radio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this latest and greatest episode of the Fangirl Radio Show. I'm your host, Jessica Dwyer, and with me, as always, are my wonderful and lovely cohorts in crime, Rachel T. Moore. What, what? And Miss Ranwellux. Hello. And the ghostly and ethereal, yet still beautiful Amanda. And tonight's episode um, is going to be, you're not going to hear very much from all of us together because we have packed into this three great interviews with three very awesome people, um, all of which tie into the horror genre. And I will, um, I will go over those in a brief moment. But first, we need to get into the Week in Geek because we don't have a lot of time for it this week. But I, um, I definitely wanted to say how awesome it looks today, um, which is actually... This is Wednesday. They, uh, as it was talk like a pirate day today. And also it was Hobbit day. And that means the Hobbit two, um, the second trailer actually for the Hobbit came out and oh my God, does it look beautiful as does, <laughs> as does Richard Armitage and Aiden Turner. Um, How did I know that was the next thing you were going to say? And, and Martin Freeman and I, and hell, even, even Ian McKellen looked hot. I don't know. It just was all so pretty. Um, but yes, uh, that's really my weekend geek is the fact that the Hobbit trailer is out and it looks even better. Um, we get a lot more stuff with the um, the, the dwarves and uh, just it looks so amazing. And we get a lot more Gollum and Smeagol even in this. I mean, they there's a, a great little in, in exchange between he, him and... Um, and Bilbo that you get to see and it's just hilarious and uh, you actually get to see Bilbo sword fighting in this trailer and uh, with Sting and it and not the singer the sword um, and it looks awesome so I am very very stoked about this that's awesome Rachel, Rachel do you have anything it's not really we can geek it's just that I turn on Netflix like yesterday and they've added Mean Girls and Clueless. So now you can watch Heather's Clueless and Mean Girls all in a row. Oh, and my God. To me, that's kind of the perfect day. That, that's, <laughs> that is, that's a drinking game right there. I know. <laughs> Each time someone looks like or is Shannon Doherty and is a bitch, <laughs> take a drink. <laughs> I kind of made, made like dying whale sounds as soon as I realized it happened because they've had Mean Girls 2 on there for a long time, which I, I won't watch because it's not written by Tina Fey. There's but, a um, Mean Girls 2? I didn't even know that such yeah, a Yeah, it was like direct to TV. It was not okay. But like, I was like, 
where my boy's at because <laughs> come on uh, um, so well, that being the TV addict I am that was huge and then um, the new normal has been on Hulu and I've been loving that show have you seen it yet uh, no I haven't but I just remembered something that I had to add that I I'm still I'm getting a total um, Daniel Radcliffe vibe and you may know what I'm getting ready to say I don't know um, but uh, okay Freddie Highmore mm-hmm Little baby Freddie Highmore, Mr. Charlie <laughs> Bucket, little little baby Bucket, is uh-huh. now twenty years old. I know, and he's playing Norman Bates in Psycho, the TV series on A and E. Oh yeah, 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 I saw that. And and and, and that was announced. He's a little actor. He is, and I'm just trying to figure out when did he become twenty? Uh, because Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I mean that. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory wasn't that. That was two thousand five, two thousand six. That was that only six years. I, he was fourteen in that. Well, I mean, he, you also have to remember that movies film sometimes. I guess. I'm just. Oh. I just was amazed. We I guess, I just I was just amazed by that and but I I really do see sense the the uh, the molding of Johnny Depp on this kid's career even more <laughs> with this this casting choice in this this project, but it sounds like it's going to be really good and your mentioning of Heather's uh, made me think of it because um, oh, they're saying yeah. that this is very much like a um, Twin Peaks meets Smallville TV series for for Psycho because it's what led to Norman Bates becoming Norman Bates. Well, and they're making a Heather's TV series, and I don't I know, know how I feel about it. I don't feel very good about it at all. I'll just be honest, because to me, Heather's is always going to be that awesome, creepy chemistry of Winona Ryder and Christian Slater. I wonder, I wonder if they can get Winona Ryder back for it. I mean, what else is she doing right now? Well, they killed her off in Star Trek, like, so Spock's mom's not coming back. So. <laughs> wow. The fact that your mind just, that was the Winona Ryder. I had forgotten she was in that. You are so nerdy. I, I am. I, I'll never forget that because it was so shocking to me. I just could not, like, of all the actors to cast, she was there for so short a time. Like, why freaking Winona Ryder? Why? And they aged her up, too. She, oh, yeah, they did. Um, no, that was just weird. That was weird to me. It took me totally out of the film for a moment. I wasn't thinking, oh, Spock's mom died. I was like, oh, Winona Ryder fell off a cliff. <laughs> and Zachary Quinto said, no! No! I love it. No, she was great in that movie. I, I was... I just was surprised that, you know, when they said that they were making a Heather's TV series, my mind immediately thought, too, there's no one that can replace Christian Slater in that unless you somehow retro age Jack Nicholson. Well, that's not and- what they're doing with it. What they're doing is supposedly from what I've read is that um, she moves back. Veronica moves back in town and um, goes to school. The daughters of the two surviving Heathers and they're like a new group of girls. I forget what they call them. Uh... But uh, they're like a new group of girls, like the Ashleys or something. I don't know what they're actually uh... So it's kind of dealing with the fact that this kind of stuff is still going on. I just have to add uh, 
Um, I just have to add ghostly Amanda's uh, comments here because you can't hear her, but she's here and she's stating, oh my God, what is their damage? And I agree. (laughs) But the the thing, the thing is, what is your damage, Heather? Um, (laughs) The thing is that Bravo's doing it so they can make it dark enough. Yeah, they can. And I understand it's Bravo, but. And I and that that's the the saving grace to me for the Psycho series because um, it's on A and E and they can do really good stuff um, too. I just <sighs> Heather's is one of those things that I don't think you can recreate. And in this day and time of of, of high school violence, yeah, it's sort of. You know, it's it was perfect for the time it, it came, and it still holds up, but it and it's still fashion. relevant. Yeah. But making it modern is going to just make it ridiculous. Well, I don't, making I, it modern makes it Mean Girls. I mean, Mean Girls with yeah. with Heather without the darkness or Jawbreaker, a Jawbreaker, and so to me, it's just not. I don't know. I think that I think that it has a chance of being entertaining, but I'm not like super. Yeah, but you're not going to be able to recreate that movie. I mean, you really well, no. I don't think anybody yeah. expects to because they're not marketing it towards us. It's going to be marketed to the younger girls now. Oh, totally. And and I don't know. I just, bleh. I don't. The other thing um, I wanted to add to was the ramp. I, I still refuse to read it until someone like pays me a lot of money to actually read it and review it. I'm not reading Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't care. <laughs> is trying no, to say, no girl no <laughs> not no gonna do it. not gonna do it um but they they did the the rumor that made a lot of people at my office cry this week was the fact that justin bieber may have been offered the role of christian gray and i i said oh that, i just almost said a bad word are you blank kidding me no and <laughs> I, I stated my my response when i saw that was absolute duh, and then i went the universe would be sucked into the biggest black hole of hang suck on, hang on hang on ever. somebody here somebody here has formed a diabolical plan somebody <laughs> here has formed the most diabolical let's end justin bieber's career plan this might just work maybe we yeah, should let the, it do it the other rumor you know selena gomez was offered the role of what's her the, the girl that two birds says, one stone two birds saying, one stone just you know, get i don't know I don't even know her name in the books. I just call her the down there and oh my girl. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, I I just I just had to share that because I uh, the amount of the I, we need Professor Brian Cox to explain to us how that black hole of suck would work when those yes, two things what a, combine. What astronomical effects it would have on the fabric of space time and yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Whether it would allow. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. Sorry. Okay, Ren, you had something for the Week in Geek. Well, it's only my Week in Geek again because, ah, uh, Ren is out of touch. But um, a few weeks <laughs> back, there, uh, uh, it's it's still oblivion. That's uh, still oblivion. Um, <laughs> a few weeks back, I was made aware of a campaign f- uh, started by the guy that uh, does the oatmeal, which if you're not aware of what the oatmeal is on the internet, Google and, oh my God, do it now. Um... But he started a campaign to build a museum for Tesla because his old um, uh, uh, laboratory was for sale 
and the land around it had been suddenly put up for sale. And of course, you know, it's it's nice land and so developers want it. They want to tear it all down and put a, you know, housing development or whatever up there. So he was saying, this is ridiculous. We need to salvage Tesla's uh, laboratory. There's also a gigantic um, thingy on the ground. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. A thingy? <laughs> Your technical terminology it blows my mind. <laughs> it was mental, man. He he he, uh, he built this tower. There's the remnants of this tower that he was building that was supposed to draw electricity from somewhere. Can't quite remember, uh, but enough to power the nation. I mean, like crazy stuff. Tesla was a genius and a madman. I mean, fantastic guy. Invented really cool stuff. So anyway. I, being the you know late to the train person that I am, only found out this week that um, within nine days of this call to let's you know buy this land together, nine days they raised a million dollars. Oh, that's, that's awesome! Land is bought. Then you know done done. Land is bought. Fantastic. The next the next part will be of course building the museum, which is going to be also very expensive. Um, the guy said that even though their goal had been met in the nine days of the 45, he was going to let it continue to run for the 45 because, of course, they need every penny to go towards the building of the museum. But it just makes me so happy that they're going to do this because the biggest point they were making is in this country, there is no Tesla museum. People barely know the contributions that man made to science. Everybody knows... That. Yeah, yeah everybody really knows... The the other ones. What were you saying? Oh, what's really interesting is that I don't know if it's still open, but for a long time there was one in Colorado Springs, and they were not allowed to advertise. They were forbidden to put up a sign with letters over three inches tall. I mean, it was like this crazy conspiracy theorists love this because it was kind of this crazy conspiracy to not let there be a museum to him, but there were some hardcore people who were dedicated to it. But nobody knew it was there. So was it like I, the Edison conspiracy or something? Like well, Edison people say it was. Some people say it was the FBI. I mean, it's but it used to be a thing that you, you would go to this museum in Colorado Springs, and people who lived there didn't even know it was there. And so I think it's awesome that they're doing this and it's such a big thing and yeah uh, it's exciting particularly because it's tesla's own laboratory so there's going to cool. be stuff in there that he that he was actually working on like that huge tower mabob thing so if you if you want more information definitely go to the oatmeal and search for tesla you'll find the original infographic because that's what oatmeal does um which is freaking hilarious and gives you more information about the property and um Obviously, stay tuned for Tesla Museum news. So we'll have one of those pretty soon. Woot! I dem I demand David Bowie open it. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> the first thing I thought of was this has got to be spearheaded by Bowie. Like he was making calls to other celebrities that might be interested in. Oh my God! Neil Gaiman would totally be down with this too. Oh my God! <laughs> Half yeah. the sci-fi oh. writers in the world would be down with this. I mean, Harlan yeah. Ellison would like come there with a shotgun. Like, well, open the door. <laughs> Given the fact that they raised a million dollars in nine days, I'd say they were down with it. Ah, oh, I doubt yeah. Dude. Well, I mean, the, the tower that they built, the part of the point of the tower was to provide wireless electricity to That's the right. United States. Wireless electricity to the entire United States. It was genius. The man just got thought of the most ridiculous things. Like, in The Prestige, when, of course, you know, David Bowie in The Prestige, he invents that machine that transports the guy from one place to another. I love the idea that it was working the whole time, but they didn't realize it because it was transport. Instead of putting him in the same spot that he stood in the first place, it would put him like 40 yards that way. 
anyway, whatever. Sorry. Total nonsense. <laughs> you just well, crazy shit like that. I said the S word. I'm sorry. I'm really excited. I like Tesla. That's okay. <laughs> wait, wait till wait till we have our interviews on. Um, they will have to be somewhat edited. <laughs> they will be somewhat edited. And our our guest. Um, I have. Um, this is my segue into. Uh, the fact that next week's show, everybody, is going to be our one-year anniversary show. Woohoo! One year of Fangirl Radio for your enjoyment. And um, at least one guest that we know is that is going to be on that show is Mr. Norman Effin Reedus. And um, I say Effin because, boy, did he... <laughs> not quite, not quite so coothly, but yes, but yes. Norman Reedus is going to be on our um, one-year anniversary show. It was an awesome, awesome uh, interview with him. I was very, very excited. And, and for um, those that are out of the loop, let's explain. This is Daryl Dixon from the Daryl Dixon, um, Murphy AKA McManus, the hot one. Yeah, the hot one with the the big bow. <laughs> Yes, yep. and uh, in The Walking Dead, Murphy McManus from Boondock Saints, he's done a ton of, of films, and uh, he's done uh, Masters of Horror, um, Cigarette Burns episode, which was one of the best ones um, from that series. Just awesome guy, entertaining, he's an artist, uh, just as well as a, an actor, and I just, it, I, I was thrilled to death to have him on. And so he, he's going to make um, our anniversary show really, really special. So um, be on the l- listen out for that. But to also now we segue into this week's episode um, because we have uh, got you three interviews this week, all um, touching upon the horror genre, and uh, two of which were um, uh, have to deal with two movies that were delayed to be released. Um, one of them you might not realize was delayed, and the other, well, both of them might not have realized how long they've been around, but you never got to see. Um, first, uh, the first interview we've got is with Mr. Drew Goddard, and Drew Goddard's name probably sounds really familiar to you if you're a fan of a little TV series called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or maybe another series called Alias. Um, Drew Goddard is a great writer. He's worked in the genre for a very long time. Television-wise, he's done tons of stuff. Um, he also wrote a movie called Cloverfield that um, kind of took that found footage uh, genre and amped it up a notch. And uh, he did a little movie that he also directed called Cabin in the Woods. Woo-hoo. And I know I know Rachel's seen that one. Um, but Cabin in the Woods actually was delayed for almost three years um, being released. Wow. And the reason for that was at the time MGM went through a little bit of a bankruptcy scare and then um, we had uh, just, they wanted to retool it for 3D and finally uh, Joss and everyone um, sort of came in and said, no, we're done with this whole 3D thing. We're not going to deal with that. And, um, we finally got the movie, and they timed it, I thought, just perfectly with the Avengers, because you had Joss Whedon's name really everywhere, and um, it, it, it did great, and it's one of the best, um, one of my favorite movies of the year. That and the Avengers really kind of just stole it. So I'm really excited. So um, here is Drew Goddard talking with me about Cabin in the Woods, as well as um, just Cloverfield and how... Just a great interview with this guy. He was really entertaining and very sweet. So here's Drew Goddard. 
Jessica. Hi, Drew. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I am doing awesome. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, so I have to ask first off, because this movie relies so heavily on just the surprise twist of it. How did you not spoil this? How do you talk? How did you talk about this movie without talking about the movie? It was, yeah, it was really challenging, I have to say. <laughs> um, it's really nice now that people have seen it to talk about it, because <laughs> it's much easier. You know, I just tried to talk about the spirit of why we made this movie, um, and, 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 and talk about the fact that we just, we love horror movies and we wanted to make a horror movie, and so we sort of set out to make, you know, our, our ultimate version of the horror film. Mm-hmm. And throw everything we could against the wall. So yeah, it's it's hard. I'm, I'm glad people have seen it because I, I don't really know how to do it. Well, and I I absolutely loved it. And and one thing about you as a writer and and the work you've done previously, like Cloverfield, and and just what you did did with the spy genre with Alias and the things on Buffy. You, you're really good at taking established genre types and, and, and the, the canon and just making it new and fresh. So I really wanted to pick your brain and find out from you as a writer, what's the process you go through? What do you look for? What do you look for to, to do that to and put that spin on? Well, you know, uh, I don't... It's never, like I set out to, um, to deal with the genre or, or archetypes or finding a fresh take. I just love these genres, you know, I, I love these types of characters, I love these types of stories, but I get bored easy, you know, and so I, I, I don't want to do the same old thing. I, I do try to find new ways to do it, but it all comes from a place of love. Like, I, I always say, if we if we, we didn't set out to deconstruct the genre with Kevin, if we did, it would have been boring. It would have been like a math problem. Um, uh, we, we set out to just make a horror film and then let it sort of expand from there. And I think that's the lesson is to to, to start from a place of love and let it expand outward. Mm-hmm. So you, you're really good. I mean, I, I loved what you did with it. I mean, it. It was just such a brilliant take. And there was a little, I, I think what was the, um, the words were, the verbiage was, it was Buffy's day off. <laughs> and that's, this is what happens when the Slayer takes a day off. <laughs> I like that. That's great. I, I really, I really dug it, and I thought that was a brilliant, uh, a brilliant little uh, homage there. <laughs> but um, one thing I loved about this was it was less like every, like not really even Abbott and Costello take on Frankenstein, but it was basically that on steroids with a bit of acid involved and there was some <laughs> ecstasy mixed into that too. That sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, what monsters, um, what monsters did you really want front and center? Because there was so much stuff going on, but there were some real good standouts and I wanted to know personally what you wanted in there. I mean, I guess, I, it, what's hard about it is that I loved all of these monsters. We worked so hard on all of them but I, it was hard for me to pick favorites. Um, and I just sort of gave myself over to the fact that a lot of these monsters wouldn't even get noticed until the fourth or fifth time people watch the film. For sure. Once you sort of accept that, then you don't, then you don't worry about it as much. And, and you, you realize, like, everybody's going to, their eye's going to go to a different part of the frame. They're going to spot a different monster. And so you ask ten people what their favorite monster was, and you're going to get ten different answers, which is, which is very satisfying for me as a filmmaker. Um, so did you, uh, 
were you kind of involved with all the little details? Because I, th- I know that there was so much, like the visual guide gives a lot of input into it, but I know there were like little details on the whiteboards and in the background. Were you a part of that, or did you just let the set guys just do whatever they wanted? No. You know, one of the hard parts about this film is tone and, and keeping the tone consistent. And I found that I couldn't let people go off the reservation because the tone would, would vacillate way too much. Mm-hmm. And so, unfortunately, everything had to go through me, and I, I get a little anal about all these things. <laughs> but that being said, you know, they, they all, they, I, I would also let them play and let them come up with stuff and see, you know, it, you know they would make jokes. Well, will Drew like this? But that's sort of the, the director's job is to just say yes or no to everything. Right, right. Well, and, and speaking of that, this is, I think this is your first time directing at least a major motion picture. Um, after working, because you've done a little bit of everything, um, you're kind of a jack-of-all-trades yourself, how is that helpful to you being a director in this time around? Yeah, I mean, it was really nice. Uh, I was, I was, I've been fortunate to work on some, some amazing shows with some amazing people, and uh the nice thing about working for guys like J.J. and Joss and Damon is that all of these shows have very cinematic approaches to storytelling. Mm-hmm. But J.J. I would always say, I don't feel like we're making an episode. I feel like we're making a mini feature every week. And uh, and we sort of just sort of kept that mentality moving forward. And so a lot of the stuff that you do directing was not foreign to me because I was, you know, I was used to talking to actors and working with budgets and, you know, framing shots, like that stuff you do in television. And so um, uh, it it was a very smooth transition in that regard. Right, right. And one word I had to ask about, too, I'm kind of bouncing around here, but I I just remembered I really wanted to ask this. How was it to film that insane, you know, I guess you'd call it the lobby sequence? (laughs) How long did that take, and, and how insane was that to actually film? I mean, it took forever. I, you know, I think if you, if you count when, it, when we started visualizing it, it, we probably worked on it for a year straight, you know, between storyboarding it and pre-visualizing it and then figuring out the logistics of how the hell we were going to do it because I, I kept giving them the rules that I wanted as much of it to be practical as it could be. You know, we, we composite it so that it's not all eight of those things happen at once and there's a couple uh, digital creatures in there. But by and large, it's... it's, it's it's done practically like those are actually the goblins ripping the guy in half and it's actually a half body getting torn apart and uh, it's actually a witch bouncing that guy all around so you know we had that we had this elaborate rig system and we would just shoot that was shooting concurrently while I was shooting other stuff so I would just bounce back and forth between sets and it took weeks I mean we worked on that one shot for weeks Wow, it, it was gorgeous. I, I was just, I was squeeing like a little kid in my chair when I went and saw this movie. I was so happy. <laughs> it was, yeah, I was ridiculous. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm your core base, I guess you would say. That's good to hear. I mean, totally. Um, so, speaking of how long that took, how did it feel to finally get this movie released? I mean, because we were waiting for it. People that had heard about it and were like, oh my God, it's Joss and Drew are going back to horror and it's going to be amazing. And it took three years to finally get to us, but it was so worth the wait. But how was it to you as the writer and the director and the man that was with it for the whole haul to finally yeah, get to I mean, it was hard. There were definitely times where like, I, I really wanted it to come out, mostly for my actors, because I, I felt like 
I felt like my cast was incredible. And in the case of some of these guys, they were they hadn't been seen by the world, and I wanted I wanted the world to see them to see how good they were, so they could uh, get other jobs. So it was definitely frustrating. But at the same time, we also knew that we, you know the movie was solid, and, and that, that people, even though a studio had gone bankrupt, people weren't going to try to change this movie. And there's a real strength and confidence in that, knowing like, okay, whatever, the movie will come out eventually. Uh, we just have to be patient. Uh, and uh, and so it, it wasn't as hard as I think people uh, would imagine. I, I always knew that sooner or later the movie would come out. Yeah. Maybe I was naive in that, but uh, I, I never lost the faith. Well, we were very happy. I mean, everybody and I, uh, we were talking, whatever happened with that? Where is it? Uh-huh. You know, we were looking around for it, and finally it arrived, and it just kind of exploded because... It hit just at the perfect time, I think, in in, in sequence with, because Joss's name was everywhere with the Avengers, and this came out just in time to like capitalize on that as well. And I think it stood on its own without it, but it it was great great timing. I mean, that got a lot of word of mouth. Yeah, we Joss and I joke. I I, it, I think it ended up being the best thing that could have happened to us because we really did come out at the right time in the right place. So you definitely be careful what you worry about. Oh, yeah. And, and I have to ask, because now the um, th- there's a rumor going around, as you know, the, the thing called the Internet. Sure. <laughs> um, that uh, there might be a sequel to this. And I know that you had said previously, have you seen my movie when that was asked? But it did so well. And I think you would be great at taking, like, that, ridiculousness that was the crazy ending of this movie and and making a sequel with it but playing on sequels right would, you, know, you know Job and I talked about it the sort of thing I think both of us in a, are in agreement that we don't want to do a sequel just for the sake of doing a sequel you know right. like we're not really interested in, in the money grab of, of, a, of a sequel but that being said we you know the, the most fun I've ever had in my career was working at Cabin in the Woods and I love this universe and I see other ways, if, there are, if we can find other ways to explore uh, other parts of this universe, uh, no, or even know what, nobody would be happier than me. So it's just a question of, of Joss and I sitting down and seeing if there's a story yet to be told, which I, I'm sure we will do in the near future. Oh, I, I absolutely love that. I love the fact, I'd love for you to bring Fran back, because I, I really, I'll, you know, everybody. If we ever do one, the hard part would be, we would want to bring everyone back. <laughs> we can't do that. <laughs> yeah, believe me, we love our cast so much. It's hard. We're always trying to put them anywhere we can. Yeah, and we and I know everybody was in it. It was so perfect. I mean, it was perfectly cast. These guys were amazing. So good on you guys for that. That movie was... I love Cabin in the Woods. I love, oh, thank you. absolutely love it. Um, so I have to ask one thing before I let you go, because uh, I know I'm getting really run out of time here, but... Um, Cloverfield. Yes. Are you doing a sequel to Cloverfield? I mean, there, there are no active plans. You know, okay. we don't have. Uh, it's not like there's anything in development. I think it, it, it's much like Cabin in that. Uh, I, neither Matt uh, or JGI, none of us want to do a sequel just for the sake of it. And so, if we can come up with something that we all like and excites us, we're going to do it. And if not. I think all of us are fine just letting it be one movie. So, I, I don't know. The answer is, 
I'm not sure what's going to happen. I would love to see like a faux documentary set within that that day, and yeah. and and following people that took footage while that was going on, and mm-hmm. and, and investigating the the conspiracy behind Slusho. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of uh, ample ground to explore. Oh man, you guys did such a good job with that one too. Yeah, get on the phone with JJ. Tell him to uh, stop uh, stop giving Star Trek so much attention. <laughs> <laughs> you need to give your mutant giant baby some love, Jay. Okay. <laughs> My favorite sentence that's ever been uttered. The secret, the secret to life is in that sentence. <laughs> give your giant baby some love. Yeah, give your giant baby. Well, Julie, thank you so much. And like I said, thank you for giving us that movie because that it, it really made my year. That one and, and the Avengers both are just two of the best. My two favorite genres, and they both came from from Team Whedon and you. So thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. I really appreciate it. I'm uh, I'm glad you're out there fighting the good fight. Oh, we totally are. And, and <laughs> I was telling everybody, you got to see this movie. You don't understand. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, dear. And I hope I get to meet you at Comic Con at some point in person and shake your hand. So that would be you. fantastic. Please don't be shy. I will not. I am. Okay. That's one thing no one has ever accused me of. Being <laughs> I love it. Right. Thank you so much, sir. I'll talk to you again. Bye. Bye-bye. And our next interview um, is with an uh, actor by the name of David Anders. And David Anders, uh, you may not recognize the name, but I can assure you you'll recognize the face. He's been in, he's currently actually in Once Upon a Time. He has been in Alias, another connection to, to um, our other movie. Um, and also he was in Heroes as the Undying um, Adam. He's also been in The Vampire Diaries. So the guy makes the rounds. And uh, the reason we interviewed him this week was his release of his new film, uh, The Revenant, which was delayed again. Um, It made the the rounds in the uh, film uh, festival circuit. And we finally got a, a wide release for it on DVD this week via Lionsgate. The Revenant is extremely... Extremely good, and you really should pick it up. Um, it's a neat entry into the the. It's sort of like a hybrid film. It's a comedy. It's a horror film. It's a crime film, and also it's. Uh, you don't really know if he's a zombie or a vampire. He's kind of a combination of the two, and so it's a nice fresh entry into the world of the zombie films. And you can read my review up on fanfilmag.com. Uh, but here you go with David Anders, the star of The Revenant. Hi, David. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I am doing wonderful, and I just have to mention, because I know you're an Oregon boy, I am calling you from Eugene, Oregon today. Go Ducks! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they just destroyed Tennessee, so that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, and Tennessee Tech. That, that was a shocker. <laughs> I know they pretty much blew them up. Well, I I know I only have you for a limited amount of time, but I I I I have to tell you I absolutely loved Revenant. I thought it was great, and you were hilarious and actually heartbreaking at the same time. So good on you for that. Right. Um, yeah, covering all the bases. Thank you. you. Thank you so much. You totally were. Um, but I I wanted to ask you about this movie because it. It took a while. I had heard about this film a couple of years ago, and it. How great is it for you to finally get this in a in a wide DVD release? Because I know you've been um, having it around on the film circuit for a while. It's uh, it's great because it's something that 
turned out um, turned out as something that we were all proud of, and you know, fine. And all we, all we wanted is for people to see it and see what we're proud of. Um, so it's thrilling to finally uh, it's been released on DVD, and, and um, you know, people can set their eyes upon it. Oh yeah. So what I know you've done a lot of work in the genre in different genres like um and with heroes with the vampire diaries what attracted you to this film specifically after you know you've had, got a healthy resume now with genre work in it what is spe- specifically about this movie attracted you Oh uh, there's something original about it um you know I I, I like the, the buddy comedy aspect of it you know, comedy is something I've always wanted to do, frankly. Um, and all I play is like heavies and bad guys. <laughs> kind of in pigeonholed or stereotyped. I mean, it's not a bad thing, but saying bad guys is more fun, frankly. But um, And you didn't I'm have to do a... I'm kind of a bad guy in this movie, but um, yeah, it sort of attracted to me initially. Uh, and, then, and then once we started, it was difficult to overshoot it was because of uh, makeup and appliances and stuff like that, and the contacts. And, uh, working with Chris Wilde was just a dream and a treat, and um, the guy's one of the funniest people in the world. So just feeding off of him and, and riffing with him was awesome, and uh, you know, I think we came up with something special. You don't have to do a British accent this time, and you're actually doing the comedy aspect of this. <laughs> right, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, polite Americans always appeals to me, being that I'm an American, but um, <laughs> a lot of people think I'm English, which means I did my job well, but um, heck, sometimes if I have enough drinks in me, I think I'm English, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, Lots of gifts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but playing an American, playing a soldier, and playing a vampire soldier, whatever the vampire, whatever the hell I am, a revenant. Um, <laughs> <was> <laughs> fun. Do you, it seems like, because like I said, you've done a lot of genre stuff. Do you enjoy how much fun it is to play within the sci-fi and horror genre? Because it seems to give um, a little bit more movement and, and ability to, t- to, to get more into a story using the genres uh, as a tool, as an actor. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's just heightened reality and surreality and, you know, non-reality, frankly, sometimes, most times. But uh, as an actor, it is a challenge and fun to try and ground it in reality. Um, and, yeah, I, I have most of my credits are genre uh, credits, but um, I like to mix it up. I would I would rather be stuck in, you know, genre work than in procedural drama hell for the rest of my life. <laughs> This is a different crime. Oh, sounds like hell to me. Um, <laughs> well, I, I have I have done a couple of CSIs, so I know. <laughs> you know for what? <laughs> well, and it seems like like within like I said within this one, you've got drama, you've got horror, you've got pathos, you've got comedy, and I don't I can't think of of a different. You know, like being able to pull that off and say a rom com, it you get so much more stuff that you can get away with in this. Yeah, it's uh, 
did a good job of balancing. You know, you know, we were trying to find a comedy, and you know, they got the gore, mm-hmm. and the blood, and the, and the killing, and um, you know, and the word "fuck" a lot. I got texted Chris into the. I watched it one final time. I think I've seen it seven times now. I watched it one final time when it was on, on demand with my parents up in Portland. Oh, wow. I think, I think what um, the Big Guard movie should have been called, Cop, man, what are we going to do? Because I don't know how many times he's talking to Well, and like in this movie, talking about in, in this part of it, um, the relationships in this movie are all sort of broken. Like you all yeah. have little bit of y'all are flawed in many ways like everybody has something up with them and i mean in terms of the story was that part of what attracted you to it and um you know what was that like putting that together as an ensemble i don't know i mean i I think carrie at the core you know he's an athletic guy and he wanted to bring this original story to life but you know in meeting with him about it first he's uh Meeting with him about it, he really expressed the bloody nature of it, and the friendship between Bart and Joey, how he really wanted to convey that. That was a strong bond. No matter what, his, his buddy was going to be there for him. You know, and he knew that. And, um, and, he, and he carries you. I, uh, he actually carries you physically. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Exactly, physically. Exactly. <laughs> and then when it turns around, and I see, I carry him up. <laughs> Um, and I love that moment when we're shooting each other after he tells me he fucked Janet. And, um, and I, I, it was my idea. These lines, I said, uh, uh, I dropped to my knees. I think this is a good point. I dropped to my knees and I say, what happened to us? <laughs> and I, I think Chris should say, you happened to us. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought that was And it was mine. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. What, what else? <laughs> well, and the one thing about the movie was it takes, even even up to this point, it hadn't been as dark as as it turned. at one, at, And it's on the subway where it really, really takes a dark turn. And I kept telling, like, I watched this with my husband, and I looked at him and I said, I bet she was pregnant. Um, so... <laughs> What do you think? Because we never really know, and this is kind of spoilery, so apologies to anyone that hasn't seen the movie yet. But what was in the letter? What do you think? What did you, in like? I mean, as an actor too, even what do you think was on that letter that just sent him right over? Uh, I think you know, Carrie did write something on there. I had that. I had that question. Jesus Christ, it was fucking long ago. I can't really remember. I mean, I just assume it was. Just, for me, I think it was just. Um, uh, just the just just the outpouring of love or whatever that she she put on that piece of paper, and I'd been trying to kill myself and I'd just to come to the world and finally brought me broke me. You know what I mean? I'd been trying to trying to power through this, although it's been hell doing it. Um, trying to rise above being you know, a, a bloodluster. You know what I mean? And and then uh, uh, maybe it reminded him of way back when. Or, I mean, you you sold that scene. I I really, I mean, I was yelling at the screen. 
no, don't turn bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, and then it just breaks in and she's there. Well, the nurse comes up. I finally turn over. I finally don't have to kill bad people. Completely, completely give myself to it, you know. So, um, with the ending of this, um, with the movie, it kind of sets itself up to as a sequel in the works. Would you be interested in that? And what would you like to see come from that? Yeah, I might be interested in that. Um, if we had some more money behind it and uh, it didn't take four years to be released, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I hopefully it would turn around quicker than this one did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it totally does. I mean, I think it's a, it's a cool, it was a cool contained drama, um, vampire drama, that comedy, whatever the hell you want to call it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I totally does open up itself to a sequel and... <laughs> You know, hopefully the hopefully the people speak, and maybe that'll be a possibility. Well, I will totally. I am totally pimping this to everybody that I can tell it to because I really, really enjoyed it, and it lived up to my expectations. Because I've been waiting for it for like three years. I mean, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I totally have. I'm sure you have too. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry about that. I'm not the one that's sorry, but <laughs> <laughs> it's all your fault, David. It's all your fault. All my fault. <laughs> Um, so uh, real quick, because I know I have to let you go here, but I got to ask, are we going to find out who the hell you are on Once Upon a Time this season? Mm, yep. <laughs> yeah, and that's you all you're going to It's going to be fucking awesome. <laughs> and um, that's all I can say. That's all I can say. <laughs> that's going to live up to the hype, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. It's going to be worth the wait. Thank you so much for all the work that you've done. I've loved you and everything you've been in, and I was so pissed off with how they kind of just kicked you out on Heroes. I wanted you to be around because you were a great character right. in there. T- yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, the writer's yeah. strike screwed me, and then, and then the writers. And, uh, and the writers got back to work, and our writers screwed me. So. The writers <laughs> That's fun while it lasted, but they, they fucking jumped the shark on that show anyway, shortly thereafter. Oh, they, so it's good to not be a part of that, frankly. <laughs> yeah, they they kind of did. I I was sad by that, but you know, too little, too late on the end. I think they'd already kicked you out, and then what could you do? It was sad. Right, and just all these new characters and sort of sort of circus. I don't know, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> it was just bizarre. I don't know. They they were trying to keep it going, but man, I Once Upon a Time is amazing. I absolutely love that show, and you guys are are kicking it out of the park every episode. So I can't wait. Yeah, to see and it's, get, it's getting darker and, and twisted. Thank you so much. Thank you, and and I can't wait to see what you got coming up. So awesome, all man! All right, Darren. You be well. You too. Thank you, sir. Bye bye. Bye bye. And our last but not least interview of the night is with actress Robin McLevy. And if you don't recognize the name, you soon will once you've seen the great horror film The Loved Ones. It's Australian horror, and it just got a wide release this week. Um, Actually, I'm sorry, last week on DVD. And the film is, it's just an intense, beautifully filmed movie. Um, And Robin's portrayal of Lola, a.k.a. Princess, is probably one of the most intense things you're going to see um, a young actress do this year. He is great. He nails this performance. Awesome film. Um, it's uh, 
you can read the review on fangirlmag.com and it gives the details of the movie. But it's a great, great flick. And it's um, if you haven't seen a documentary called Not Quite Hollywood, which is a history of the Australian um, film, jo- film world, It'll give you a great introduction on to how a movie like this came to to be made. It's written and directed by Sean Byrne, and it's a great, great flick. So here is Robin McLevy, star of The Loved Ones. Hey, hi, Jessica. How are you doing? Hi, Robin. How are you? I'm good. Well, I I actually just watched the the movie, and um, you were amazing, and everybody actually was great in this film. I I was blown away by it. It was really really good. Oh, great! Thank you. Oh, no pro- no problem at all. Um, I I, I don't ha- I know you're uh, you're busy, uh, but I wanted to first start off by asking. I I, I did some research, and I saw that. Um, the director told you to start looking into serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer and watching things like Natural Born Killers um, yep. to get prepared for this role. Uh, what what did you take away from that while you were getting into this um, into the mindset of this? What did what did you take away from uh, this research? Um, well, it was funny because when I first got the role, I. I was about to go on a long haul flight, um, to and uh, for a holiday by myself. And Sean gave me this eighty-page document um, that had a combination of information about Obama and various other serial killers and their strategies that they utilized. Um, uh, and and then it had a whole bunch of stuff with like Disney characters and Cinderella and um, little girls and why they love pink and the psychology behind the use of pink and wow. <laughs> it was kind of a really messed up bunch of material and I started reading the Jeffrey Dahmer stuff and I said to Sean I was like oh my god I, I can't take this on the plane with me I'm going to have nightmares um, and I'm going to have a really horrible holiday <laughs> so um, <laughs> and I, I'm not a huge, I wasn't a huge horror um, fan before doing the film, but the thing that attracted me to the film was <clears throat> the fact that Lola was, the, you know, she was the female protagonist and she, she was the perpetrator of the violence, and that's not something you see every day. It's not available um, to women often in, in horror films, so that's why I jumped at it, but I also was aware that I wanted to be really creative with my with my um, process of creating her, and I didn't want to, um, I wanted to make her likable, and so I get, I avoided the, the, the serial killer stuff because I found it disturbing, and I didn't want to make her sociopathic to the point where uh, you don't want to be in the same room as her. There had to be something kind of tantalizing and, and almost naive about the way she conducted her torture on friends. So, I tried to yeah, just explore that. What it was. if she was, you know, six-year-old, six-year-old girl? Like the, the, that whole evening was treated as a birthday party rather than a torture session. Well, and I was curious too. Um, I always am about how you. Uh, an actor makes a history for a character, and there's obviously history between you and and your father, and definitely the mom. Uh, that we don't yeah. get to see, 
And I wondered if you all worked towards that or if you were given something uh, beforehand to go by for that. Um, yeah, Sean gave us a really detailed and sorted backstory for all of the characters. And basically, it was that I think John Brumpton was a, a war, um, like a Vietnam War vet. <laughs> and he, all this weird stuff happened to him in Nam, and then he, uh, he was molested as a child, and it was really involved and really kind of but it made perfect sense as to why these characters were where they are at right now. And, um, yeah, they um, they essentially were bottomized um, bright eyes of the mother character um, when she tried to escape. So they've been performing these acts of, of violence on, on young boys who said no to Lola from a very early age. Um, so, yeah, and having that mystery was, it was as messed up as it was, it was kind of helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so, was there, um, when you first saw the script, was there, was there any hesitation on your part um, to take that on? Because a lot of people, you know, you're, you're going to be an icon. I mean, this is an iconic role. I've already talked to a lot of people that have, have, seen, have seen the loved ones, and they absolutely love her character and, and, and who she is and yeah. the fact that she's you know, the dress, all of that, it, you know, there's going to be people dressing up at horror conventions like you. Was there any yeah. hesitation on your part to, to take this with that kind of, of possibility? Um, well, I can't, I didn't really expect to get the role, and then when I found out that I had, I, I was surprised and I was excited to, to take on something that I'd never done before, and I did have a, a bit of a hesitation about, you know, will I be typecast in the future or what it's going to do to my career in terms of, is it going to be viewed as a, you know, a lowbrow move, but it's, like you say, it has become this iconic kind of um, cult thing and, um, and you know, you only have to look at Kathy Bates in Misery to, you know, to realise how, oh, she got nominated for an Academy Award for that. So, and I think you can't turn down an opportunity to play uh, a, a woman that they just, that is that kind of emotionally disturbed and and not get something out of it, you know. And, um, yeah, it's, just, it's the kind of role that doesn't come along every day. Well, and you definitely, I mean, you're, you're right. There's not a lot of female, you know, villains like this in cinema. And it's kind of neat yeah. to see a girl up there. You know, they're typically cons- called either the bride of something, like either the bride of Chucky or the bride of Frankenstein or something like yeah. that. But she's a standalone. Yeah. I mean, she's the princess. That's what, you know, that's... Yeah. <laughs> and that alone is pretty yeah, amazing. Sorry, what did you say? I said that alone is pretty amazing because you've taken this girly persona, but she's going to stab you through the, the jugular vein. That's right, yeah. That's it. And, um, I get, yeah, Sean, his imagination is pretty wild. And so, yeah, it, it, it's nice to have to, to us, you know, to combine that, that girlishness and the vulnerability with, you know, an absolute ferocity and power and 
unrelenting kind of sadistic <laughs> um, um, mind frame that just, yeah, it uh, out of control. Um, so was there, uh, is there any, anything that happened on set during these sessions? I mean, was there a point where it, it became maybe too real? Because there's some intense scenes between you all in this. Yeah. I mean, I, I was wary of kind of working too close to myself. I, just, I wanted to be really creative in terms of building the character. So I read a lot of, um, I read um, all of the Saxon's books the man who mistook his wife for a hat because he kind of described um, mental illness as this... He described a certain kind of mental illness where, where the episodes are kind of like a high and they're really ecstatic and, and beautiful and the, and the world becomes really vivid and and kind of saturated with colour and light. And, and so I kind of wanted to work from a really sensoric place rather than and, and kind of balance that with, with the, the feelings of rejection and, um, yeah, I kind of wanted to make it as fun as possible within the realms of that disturbing mind. <laughs> and I think that helped well, and, alleviate anything of this book. Well, and, and the way the film kind of plays out with those pauses and, and the slow motion and just the look of euphoria on your face and some of the realizations that... The other characters, you know, they just pause and, like, they're taking it all in. That kind of syncs up with to what that sort of philosophy with it. And it just looks so beautiful on screen. It works so well. Yeah, we had, I mean, Nancy Fugel, who um, designed the dress and um, she played a big part in creating that amazing visual element. And uh, Simon Chapman, now VP, style is gorgeous and uh, you know where we were shooting out in the we were shooting in rural Victoria in Australia and it's um, yeah the, the balance of colours and it just it almost does create this surreal kind of um, disco in, in the bush um, yeah well and, and I'm so sorry to interrupt but Jessica if we can wrap up with one last question oh sure um the one thing I, I wanted to ask you um, before we cut off is uh, the fact that the movie, everyone is sort of damaged. Did did that come across yeah. whenever you read the script, that sort of everyone in this has had something damaged to them? Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of... Um you know, of, of portraying characters like that. And, it's, uh, you know, horror, you can kind of take horror with a grain of salt, but when you're inside of the, the characters, you want to make them as, as as truthful as possible and, and really exploring where, what that damage is to that character and where, it's come, where it comes from is really kind of integral to, to really fleshing out the character. And, um, it, yeah, it's... It, Hopefully, it can give the audience some uh, just a, a little bit of empathy, or at least want to try and understand why they've become like this. Because I think we all wonder that when you read about, you know, sociopaths and serial killers in the news, you you wonder how they got how they got to that point and what their past was. But yeah, I think it's really important that that, that 
Sammy Gellum and his Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Robin. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us tonight. And uh, the movie is amazing. Thank you for for creating an iconic character like like the princess because she totally is. And and I, you did a great job. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for supporting the film and for yeah, bringing it out there. It's great. No worries. Thank you again. Bye bye. All right. Have a great day.